Uh, if you're new with us, uh, we're glad that you're here with us. If you're joining us online, maybe for the first time or maybe not for the first time, we're glad that you've chosen to tune in this morning to our live stream. And I just want to make you aware of the fact that uh, if, if, if you would like some information about Redeemer, that when you came in, if you're here physically, there should have been a card like this in the seat where you're seated. Uh, you can fill that out and uh, drop that in. There's a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. We'd be happy to send you some info about who we are. If you're online with us, you can find that same information on the homepage of our website. You can click there. It'll take you to uh, some fields to populate and be able to submit that same information. You can also submit prayer requests through this card as well. We'd be happy to pray with you or for you about things that are going on in your life because uh, we don't believe anyone should have to bear those things alone. So this morning we continue our series in uh, Advent, uh, Jesus Changes Everything, by considering the fact that Jesus changes our family. He changes our family. So 1 John chapter 2, picking up in verse 28, we'll read together down through chapter 3, verse 3. John writes these words, And now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. This is God's Word. You know, one of my favorite Christmas movies uh, is Home Alone. Uh, the original, okay? Sequels, eh, not so much. But the original is one of my favorites. In fact, we watched it uh, Friday night as a family after the uh, Christmas tree lighting event down there at Fate City Hall. Um, but the story as it unfolds, you know, the McAllisters, the movie opens with the McAllisters getting ready to go to Paris to visit extended family, and there's just chaos everywhere in the home, and listen, poor little Kevin, he's having a rough night, okay? So his cousins are dumping on him, and in his response to his cousins and his brother and the way he's being treated, right, he creates all kinds of chaos, spilling milk and Pepsi all over the table on the floor, the passports and the tickets are all now just... Uh, soaking up all the liquids, uh, and his father and mother come down on him pretty hard. They correct him, and they, his mom leads him up the stairwell uh, in order to um, basically to his cell for the evening, which would be in the attic where he would be sleeping that night. Right? But before being confined to his cell for the evening, he stands there on the stairwell, stairwell with his mother, and he wishes that there was no one making the rules, right? There was no one calling the shots. There was no one telling him what to do, when to do it, or how to do it. Essentially, he wishes he had no family, no mother, or no father. Now, overnight, okay, we all know the power goes out. And the family is awoken the next morning by the knock of the airport shuttle driver on their door realizing that they had overslept. And so everyone is now in a hurry, rushing around the home, trying to get, gather up all their stuff so they can make it to the airport in time to catch their flight. Now they all assemble outside, and one neighborhood kid wanders over and ends up kind of looking around the van and gets counted in the head count so they don't think they're missing anyone. So off to the airport, they get on their flight, and they're on their way to Paris whenever Kevin wakes up mid-morning still at home alone. Right? At home alone. And, I, I, and he finds, emerges from the attic, and as he walks around the home, he makes this, this statement, right, first in shock. He says, I, 
I, I made my family disappear, right? And then with the grin of a Cheshire cat, right? I made my family disappear, right? And so he essentially now has no one calling the shots, telling him what to do. He has his own authority. He can do whatever his heart desires. And listen, church, I want to tell you something this morning. What Kevin declares outside that attic door, that he wants to be in his own, no one to tell him what to do, he can follow his own heart, have no rules, and then experiences the following morning with no family, no mother, and no father. It's the same thing our first parents did in the garden thousands of years ago. Whenever they looked at God and they said, we want to be our own God. We want to create our own rules. We want to run our own lives. We don't want anyone or anything constraining us or binding us. We want to be God ourselves. And, it has the same, it, and, and ultimately it produced the same result whenever they declared that we want to be our own God. And so as a result, all humanity who's come in their wake, listen, we have lost the right to claim God as our Father by our natural birth. By being born out of a, a mother's womb, we no longer are born as uh, children of God with God as our Father. And rather, we're born as spiritual orphans and felons. We're orphans because we've lost the right to claim God as our Father. And we're felons because we've joined in the rebellion of our first parents to violate God, God's commands and break His law. Now listen, as the story unfolds on the screen, right? And the chronicles Kevin's experience living on his own, trying to defend his home from burglars. Some of the most classic movie lines, I think, in the history of cinema, okay? Uh, keep the change, you filthy animal, okay? Or, like, you guys give up or you're thirsty for more, right? I just love those one-liners uh, throughout the movie. It also, however, chronicles the never-ending, never-giving-up, never-stopping, always faithful and forever love of a parent. It shows Kevin's mother who was willing to spare no expense and shrink back from no degree of sacrifice to fight her way back to her erring child. And in the same way, church, I want you to know that God our Father has fought His way back to us in the sending of His own Son. It's because of Jesus Christ. The child conceived in, carried by, and born of the Virgin Mary that by faith in Him we can move from being felons to family, orphans to children. God has fought His way back to us. It's a, more the, the big storyline of the Bible. And we celebrate that every single year whenever we come to celebrate Advent. The descending of God's Son. That we're able now to be reconciled and have relationship with God as our Father. But how do you know if that is you? How do you know if you've come to know God as your Father? Listen, there's lots of people out there who are generally religious, who have an intellectual category for God being a Father. They've heard it all their lives. God is a Father, but there is an eternal difference between is and as. You can know God is a Father and spend eternity separated from Him in hell because you never knew Him as your Father. So how do you know if you know God as your father or if you're just a generally religious person who's still an orphan and still a felon? That's one of the major themes in the book of 1 John. And in this text this morning, I think there's two ways. There's lots we can say out of this text this morning, but I want to give you two things, two ways to identify whether or not you're still operating in the is camp or whether or not you've moved to the as camp, that you actually know God as your father. And the first way is this, that genuine, legitimate children of God who's had their family transformed and changed by the love of God in Jesus Christ, they rejoice in the love of the father. They rejoice in his love. 
Listen, church, in 3.1, coming off the heels of reflecting upon being born of God in verse 29, when John says we've been born of Him, John's heart erupts in a declaration of the greatness of God's fatherly love. And listen to what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Your translation might say, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now that word see there in the text is actually a command. In other words, he's telling you to do something, right? He's commanding you, see, behold, look. But it's also a word that means more than just use your visual faculties. In other words, just open your eyes, allow your corneas, right, to give you an image that your optic nerve is going to process and send to your brain and use your visual faculties to see, right? Rather, what John is saying is like the difference between knowing, right, what a sunrise might look like over the Colorado Rockies and sitting on the shore of a crystal clear mountain lake as the sun peaks up over the hills on the horizon, right? You can know that it's taking place somewhere, but until you experience it, till you perceive it, till you know it, you haven't seen it in this sense, he says, see, behold what kind of love. Right? Whenever you and I tell someone, listen, man, you've got to see this. We're talking about more than using your visual faculties, right? We're saying, listen, this is so astounding, you've got to experience it for yourself. Right? So you might say that whenever you go to a great barbecue restaurant and say, you've got to see this, right? You've got to see this place. You're not saying, you've just got to look it up on the internet and see the picture of the building. You say, you've got to go in the door, you've got to eat the brisket, you've got to eat the chicken, you've got to experience it and perceive it for yourself. That's what John is saying here. Now, I think it's important that we recognize that what, when John says this, listen, he has not just received some new information, He's talking about the love of God, and he's talking about the new birth. These are two things that are already very deeply ingrained in John's life. Okay, If you go back into John's gospel, as he walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, in John chapter 3, John records this encounter Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3 comes perhaps the most known Bible verse in all of the world. Right, John 3, 16, for God so what? Loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the love of God is already rooted deeply in John's experience and understanding of who God is. But also the new birth, because in 3.7 of John's gospel, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Right? And so these are not new categories for John. He's not getting new information here. What's going on for John as his heart erupts and says, you've got to see this, what's going on for him is not that new information is coming to him, but the information he already has is becoming new for him. It's becoming new in his experience and in his life. Let me see if I can make it plain for you. Right? I can remember when my children were little, and right, little enough for me to pick up and carry, all right? back in the day. And so we'd be walking through the park at times, and they'd be holding my hand. Right? I remember when my son was real small, we went to the park in Rowlett, and he tripped on two separate occasions on the same day, fell on the same concrete path, the same spot on his head. He had a horn growing off of it, okay? It was just emerging out there. But I remember holding his hand the rest of that day as we walked along. Okay? And it, there's a difference, right, between just having an understand, general understanding that your father loves you and those moments. I can remember those moments when we would be walking along and there would just be times where my heart overflowed with love for him. And so I would get down on one knee and I would look at him in the eye. 
And I would say, and I would grab him a big bear hug, and then I would pick him up like this and just squeeze him and hold him, and I'd whisper into his ear, your daddy loves you. Your father loves you. And you could see his eyes light up, and you could see a smile come upon his face. Now, what's going on there? The child's not, my child, your child, isn't getting any new information. They've known from the time they were born that their father has loved them. Because if they have a good dad, right? Mm. If they have a good dad, <laughs> yeah, their dad has helped feed them, has changed diapers, has rocked them, has held them, has bathed them, has clothed them, has provided for them, and the child knows that the father loves them. But there are those moments There are those moments in which that information becomes new, that truth becomes red hot, radioactive in their life, right? And their heart erupts in their chest as they contemplate just how much their dad loves them in that experiential moment. And listen, church, what John is describing here is that very reality. See it. Experience it. Rejoice in it. And this may not happen every day, it may not happen every week, it may not happen every month, but from time to time, listen, legitimate children of God, they get a heightened awareness, a renewed sense of the love of God on their heart that causes their heart to erupt like a volcano that's been dormant for hundreds of years that all of a sudden begins to bubble and it begins to rise to the surface and love and joy begin to spill over the brim into their life. That's what John's describing here. And listen, just so I can be very clear this morning, I'm not just talking about women. I'm not just talking about very emotional types. I'm talking about even the burliest, most lumberjack-looking dudes in the room. Okay? That at times, they get a sense of God's love on their hearts that is inescapable. And whether you shed a tear or whether you're choking back that quiver in your throat, as you think about God's love, as you rejoice in God's love, as you reflect on God's love, legitimate children who know God as their Father, they're rejoicing in His love. But why? What about the Father's love causes our hearts to erupt like this? And I think John tells us at least two things. First of all, it's the nature of His love. It's absolutely foreign to us, church. Absolutely foreign. Listen, the phrase in the text, what kind of, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that phrase kind of, it literally means this, from what country? In other words, this is not a native love to you and I. It's not something that we are accustomed to. It comes from a different country, from a different culture that has different priorities. Right? That's from somewhere outside of us. So how is this love foreign to us? In a couple of ways. First of all, it's a condescending kind of love. Now when you and I hear that word condescending, you think of what? Of somebody elevated up on a platform who's looking down their nose at someone or speaking down to someone else who is lower than them. Right? That's how we often think of the word condescending. But the word condescending can also mean not speaking down to, but coming down to. And God's love is a condescending love, not in the sense that He sits on His throne and looks down His nose at us and speaks down to us, but the fact that He, in the person of His Son, came down to us. 
the greater came to the lesser. In fact, the word for love that John uses in the text is a word that often describes a relationship between a king and a peasant, between a greater and a lesser. And John is saying this is the kind of love the God of all creation who spoke the world into a being by the very words of his mouth, he himself has come down to us condescended to meet us where we are. We are not accustomed to that kind of love because people who are high and exalted only love other people who are high and exalted in our culture, in our country. What country is this love from? But secondly, it's a gracious love. See, God is not obligated to love us, but He freely chooses to do so. He says He has given to us. Not that we have earned from Him, but He has given to us, church. There's no degree of worthiness on our part earn God's love. And we're not accustomed to experiencing a love like that. That's the kind of love that's from another country and another culture because we experience love oftentimes as a wage, not as a gift, something that is given. So when we interact with people in our horizontal human relationships, we're often aiming to earn their love by our performance right, or earn their affection by our achievements. Look at me, I'm impressive, love me. We're trying to earn it. But John says that this love is not based on certain conditions that we have met or certain milestones that we have met, but the conditions that Jesus met for us. In fact, Frederick Lehman in 1917, when he wrote this monumental hymn that I love to reflect on, it's called The Love of God. He says this, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. And then He goes on to say, could we with ink the oceans fill. Every body of water on the earth was filled, was like, a, was like a vat of ink. And were the skies of parchment made, the heavens were paper upon which we could write. And every stalk, every stick on earth was like a quill, a pen to be dipped into that ink. And every single man, he says, a scribe by trade. In other words, that was your job, was to write with the ink from the ocean on the paper in the sky with every stick on the earth, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It's a gracious, giving love that comes down to us in the person of His Son. That's what's causing John's heart to erupt. But not only the nature of it, but the result of it. Look what John says the result of it in verse 1. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. That we would be born of God. Now listen, church, the new birth, it is not less than adoption. Okay? It is not less than that with legal standings, rights, and privileges that any adopted child would have after an edict or an order is issued by a magistrate or a judge, it is not less than adoption, but the new birth, I want to tell you this morning, is more than that. It is more than adoption. 
In fact, God, we're told in 1 John, God impregnates our heart with the seed of His Spirit. When He speaks of the anointing in chapter 2, verse 20, and the anointing in chapter 2, verse 27, He's not talking about some crazy anointing that we go on, lay on people's graves, and try to soak up from people who have come before us in our past, like some other churches might believe. But what He's talking about is this. The anointing is His Holy Spirit that is implanted within us. So that, listen, the very love of God comes to live in us. Theologians throughout history, as they've reflected on the person of the Holy Spirit, have said that the Holy Spirit is the love the Father has for the Son and the love the Son, the, the love the Son has for the Father that is so deep, is so rich, so dynamic that it stands forth as the third person of the triune God. It's not some force, He's a person, but it's embodied, the embodiment of the love of God has for Himself. And John says, that is what's come to live in you. The very love of God has been implanted in your soul so that you would be born of Him. It's not less than adoption, but it's more than that. And John says on account of that, on account of that love, Christians bear this title, children of God. And so we are. Rejoicing in the love of the Father but what difference does it make? Let me give you two. I know I had two big points. I've got like 17 other smaller points. <laughs> so I'm a preacher, right? That's what we do. What difference does it make? Right? If you really know God as your Father, rather than just knowing God is a Father with some kind of category out there, first one is this, it changes the way you relate to Him. It changes the way you relate to Him. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, those who know God is a Father, they have an intellectual category for that. They come to God confessing their sins to a judge or a jury awaiting a verdict to be rendered. But those who know God as their Father, they're not coming to a judge or jury, but they're coming to a dad to confess their sins. Not waiting for a verdict to be rendered because a verdict has already been rendered on their life in Christ. This has been stamped across the page of their life, not guilty, because of Jesus. And so they're coming to God, confessing their sins to be reconciled to this Father for whom they want to, don't want to experience any distance in their relationship to. As Thomas Boston, a Puritan pastor, said many, many years ago, he said, believers ought not to mourn over or confess their iniquities in a legal manner, viewing them as committed by persons under the covenant of works, but ought to confess and mourn over them as sins done against a reconciled father and breaches of his law as a rule of life. In other words, you're not coming to God quivering in your boots, wondering if He's going to love you or not love you. He's already demonstrated that He's loved you. He's already lavished His love upon you. And you're coming to confess your sins to Him, to clear, keep your account clear with Him, so there's not distance between in your heart and His, and you can enjoy fellowship and intimacy with Him. It changes how you relate to Him, church. But second of all, it changes how you relate to yourself. See, those who know God as their Father, they have an irrefutable identity and an unshakable security. 
See, listen, I want you to know something. To be adopted, it means at a very fundamental level to be chosen. And listen, being chosen is one thing every person on the face of this planet longs for. I can remember it in middle school when it came time to pick teams. You probably can too. Right, because I was, I'll, I'll go ahead and be real vulnerable with this one. I was the dude that nobody wanted. I know, it made you feel so sad for me, right? <laughs> I was always the dude, because I, I, I was always the scrawny little guy who was stumbling over himself, and right? It wasn't until I got into high school that my coordination came, and I began to get a little bit of strength, and, but <laughs> I always got picked last. Everyone wants to be chosen. But listen, there are levels outside of middle school flag football in which that chosenness has profound and lasting implications. Trevor Noah, who um, is, was a, a biracial man with a black mother and white father who grew up in South Africa under the apartheid, where interracial, interracial relations were against the law, they were illegal. And he said all throughout his childhood he struggled with his identity. Because while he had a relationship with his mother, his mother and father knew for him to be seen with him in public would have meant jail time at best. And so his father was removed from his life for the safety of his family for a decade. A decade. Only later on to be reunited. And when you listen to an interview that Trevor Noah did several years ago, I want you to hear what he says about the reality of being chosen, not for middle school flag football, but by a parent, by a father. Listen to what he says. As people, we try to deny it, but being chosen is probably one of the most wonderful feelings you can experience as a human being. I think a lot of time, that's all we're doing. We're going through our lives trying to be chosen. We try to be chosen in a relationship. We try to be chosen in a job. We try to be chosen in a community. And that being chosen gives you a sense of belonging. It makes you feel like you matter. And that's where parents play a big role, he says, because when we are chosen by our parents, that becomes the foundation of how we see ourselves in the world. So for me, I always knew, he says, I was chosen by my mom. And I knew my dad loved me, but because I hadn't had contact with him for so long, for various reasons, I didn't exactly know if he still chose me. Then to get to a point when you meet a man after 10 years, and you realize that not only was he still seeing himself as my father, but more importantly, he was following everything I did in my life. That's a wonderful feeling. A feeling that I think I, and wish everyone would have, and that is to know that you mean something to someone who is, in essence, one half of what you are. Now listen, church, if the experience of being chosen by our parents, who are image bearers of God, is foundational to how we understand our identity and live with security in this world, how much more how much more is the experience of being chosen by God, our eternal and everlasting Father, foundational to how we see ourselves and operate in this world? You see, fundamentally, the experience of being chosen gives us identity and security, and there is no greater source of identity and no greater sense of security than to know that God the Father, from before the foundations of the world, set His affection upon us, loved us, and in space and time, moved heaven and earth through the sending of His Son, and by the power of His Holy Spirit, brought us to life 
and chose us as his sons, chose us as his daughters. And not just that we were the leftovers at the end of the round when people picked, but he set his affection and chose us. How much more so does that influence our identity and give us security in this world? Listen, church, are you trying to determine who you are today? Are you wrestling with massive insecurity today? Knowing God as your Father and rejoicing in His love, His foreign love, His from another country kind of love for you that would take you in and bring you from being a felon into family and from an orphan into a child. That's the only solution for your issues with identity and security. Are you rejoicing today in God's love for you? Second, big point. Not only do you rejoice in the love of the Father, but you reflect the likeness of the Father. You reflect the likeness of the Father. Listen, there's no denying there's oftentimes familial resemblance between a father and his children, right? Appearance, mannerisms, interests, hobbies. You know, I, I can remember several years ago going to a parent-teacher meeting um, or, or a PTA gathering there at the, my son's school at Stevenson Elementary right here in Wood Creek and walking through the doors. I think it might have been Meet the Teacher Night or something like that. And we walked in the doors and we went into his classroom and there was a little girl in there whom I had never met before. And she walked up to me and she looked up with those big bright eyes and she said, you're Caleb's daddy, aren't you? And I said, yes. How'd you know? She was like, you look just like him. for which I'm so deeply sorry for him. <laughs> so deeply sorry that anyone would have to bear this resemblance. But that is undeniable, right? That oftentimes when you're a part of a family, right, you bear because you share in their genetics, you share in their DNA, you are raised in that home. So a lot of times you share in their mannerisms, their way of speaking, their way of interacting, their interests. A lot of those things get passed down. And listen, the same is true for those who have been born into God's family, is that they are progressively bearing His likeness. In verse 29, John says there's a logical connection between God being righteous. In 1.5 of 1 John, he says, He is light in Him, is no darkness at all. There's a logical connection to, between the righteousness of God and the righteous behavior of those who have been born of Him. A connection. Notice the language. Now, this is important to see. You don't get born again by being righteous. That is not the means to the new birth. You don't get born again because you performed really well. Right? You have enough merit to hold up to God. But rather, if you've been born again, you're striving in your life to practice righteousness. Right? You can't get the cart before the horse there because then you have something that's not Christianity. I don't know what it is, but it's not Christianity. Right? Christianity says you're born again and then you strive to reflect the likeness of God as He conforms you more into the image of His Son. Right? And then in 3.2, John says that in the present, God's children purify themselves with the hope that when Jesus returns, we will be made like Him. Right? When He says, brothers, what we will be has not yet appeared, but when He does appear, we shall be transformed into His likeness because we'll see Him as He is. And right now in the present, because we're hoping for that in the future, our lives are being purified by that very hope. Right? So we're 
reflecting His righteousness. We're purifying ourselves with the hope of His return. But what does this look like practically? Let me give you two things and we'll be done. First of all, to reflect the likeness of the Father looks like living as a trophy of God's love and grace. See, God's love and grace are not excuses for sin, but rather motives to fight against it. Right? Motive for purity rather than excuse for our perversion. Paul will say it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or to use John's words earlier in 1 John, he says legitimate children walk in the light as he is in the light. Right? So we live as a trophy of God's love and grace. I remember a few years ago at Thanksgiving, we were down at my family's house in South Louisiana. My parents had been cleaning out closets in the attic, and they had boxes of stuff that belonged to me and my brother. So I started sorting through those boxes, and I found all these old newspaper clippings from when I was in high school of, of like uh, track meets that I'd won, or cross-country meets that I'd won. I found all the old trophies from baseball, from you know, Little League and All-Star teams and all this stuff that was sitting in the closet. My mom was like, we don't want this. I don't know if you do, so sort through it. And I can remember sitting on the living room floor going through all that stuff and just reminiscing on all my glory days, right? Um, and my children ended up ultimately fighting over the trophies, right? They were like, I want this to put in my room or this middle. They had no idea their father had done so much, right? As they began to look through all that stuff. But listen, those trophies were cheap pieces of golden colored plastic, all right? Worth about 250 if that. But they represented a victory. That something had been won. Something had been accomplished. But I want you to know something. Our everlasting Father, He's won a cosmic victory. And has lavished us with His love and grace. And the question then becomes, what has He won in that victory? And the answer is, us. Us, church. We are the trophies of His love and grace and have inestimable worth because of what He has done. See, those who have heard God as a Father, they oftentimes grow stagnant in their pursuit of righteousness, right? They may have a sense of guilt and shame because they're not living the way they're supposed to be living. And so they know God is a Father. And so they're like, ah, I wrestle with this stuff inside. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they're not pursuing righteousness. They're not striving for purity. They're not purifying themselves with the hope of Christ's return and their transformation into His likeness when He does, Right? They're not doing that because they're not living as a trophy of His love and grace. They're not striving to practice righteousness as a heart response to God setting His affection upon us, choosing us, and bringing us into His family. So listen, let me ask you a question. Are there areas of your life this morning in which you have walled off from God? You say, God, you know what? I know this may be wrong, but you know, you know what? I know that you're a loving and forgiving God. Right? This is typically how we, we argue with ourselves, right? God is a loving and forgiving God. I know that He's gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. We forget the part about right, visiting the iniquity of the Father upon third and fourth and generations, right? But abounding in steadfast love. I know that you love us, and so I know, I, I know, this, I, I know this is wrong, but I'm just going to kind of continue to pet that thing. Okay, I'm going to wall you off from this portion of my life if there are areas of your life that are walled off from God. 
in which you're not ex- practicing repentance and exercising and pursuing righteousness. Church, this morning, repent. Repent. Tear down the sheetrock. Right? Take the sledgehammer to the studs and open up access to that area of your life to God and His love and see how He would transform it. Live as a trophy of His love and grace. Don't use His love and grace as an excuse, and, as an excuse for your perversion or as a motive for your purity. And then finally, you love indeed in truth. Indeed in truth. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, we, we see these words written, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. See, those who've heard God is a father, they talk about loving others, right? In like small groups and in conversations. But those who know God as their father, they actually lean into people's needs with their resources and their time and their energy. They lay down their goods. They lay down their lives to love their brothers and sisters well and to love those they're hoping to welcome into God's family. So in the same way that God's love didn't stay in the abstract but expressed itself through concrete action in time and space, right? In the person of Jesus Christ, they put their action, they put actions to their affections and demonstrate what they desire. They show what they have said. What they're declaring, they end up demonstrating by their life. See, those who know God as their Father, they reflect His likeness in the way that they love other people. Not only talking about it, but actually doing it. Who has God put in your life to love? I can tell you, He's put these people in this room in your life to love. He's put the people who share the walls of your home in your life to love. He's put the people in your workplaces in your life to love. It is not by chance that you find yourself in this church. It is not by chance that you find yourself in your place of employment or your vocation. It is not by chance that you find yourself in your family of origin. It is not by chance that you find yourself in the neighborhood where you reside, that God sovereignly superintends all those things for the purpose of putting you in a place to love. There may be other purposes, but that's at least one of them. To love indeed in truth. Reflecting his likeness. So that the love that you're rejoicing over that's coming to you, causing your heart to erupt, is spilling over into your actions as you engage those around you. Jesus changes everything, church, including our family. Have you moved from orphan to child, from felon to family member? If not, I want you to know you can this morning. That if you would lay aside all of your attempts to earn your way to God, impress Him in some capacity by all the things that you've done, and you would say, I come to you not with hands full, but with hands empty, not trusting in my merits, but in your mercy, 
believing upon the work of Jesus to forgive and to cleanse me. I repent of running and ruling my own life, and I receive Jesus' salvation, not only to cleanse my guilt, but to rule for him to be the king of my life and rule my every step. If that's you this morning, if that's you this morning, I would love to visit with you about that. I'll be at the room as we just, at the back of the room as we dismiss. Stop by. I'd love to share with you about that. Brian will be here this morning. He's been leading us in worship. He would love to visit with you about that. And listen, church, if you're a Christian this morning, my hope and my prayer for you this Advent is that your heart would once again erupt with a heightened sense of awareness of God's love for you. That you would not be content to walk through this season in the mundane reality of buying Christmas presents, baking cookies. But my hope would be for you that you would get on your knees and petition God, God, will you by the Holy Spirit, awaken within me a greater, deeper sense of your love for me that you demonstrated in your son Jesus. And that might be motive for me to begin to reflect your likeness and the power to do it. Let me pray for us. Father, today, We acknowledge that none of us in this room is worthy of your love. And because of that, there is no one in this room, there is no one in this room or online with us today under the sound of my voice who cannot receive it. Father, I pray specifically for those who are not Christians this morning. They do not know you as their father. They may have heard all their lives that you are a father, but they've never come to know you as their father. God, I ask that you remove the scales from their eyes and the veil from their heart. That would cloud their sight and they would see and experience and understand firsthand for themselves the depth of your love in your Son. That they would repent of sin. They would trust in Christ. And they would be woven into your family. No longer orphans, but children. No longer felons, but family. And I pray for those who have experienced that already in their lives, God. I pray they would not be content this season to continue in immaturity or to continue in immorality, to use your grace as an excuse for their sin. But God, I pray there would be a repentance and a greater reflection of your likeness in all of our lives. And I pray, God, that we would be on our knees asking that your Spirit would light the match in our hearts and souls, would cause the volcano to begin to bubble once again as we have a heightened sense of awareness of your love for us. That we would know your embrace. That we would know your comfort. 
May we know your peace. May we know your love. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.